Welcome to the Schwartz on Sports podcast, hosted by Noah Schwartz. Hey everybody, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports, episode number 12 here, presented by the Belly Up Podcast Network. I am your host, Noah Schwartz. Happy New Year, everybody. New Year's Eve is tomorrow. I'm recording this Wednesday night, so New Year's is tomorrow. Hope everybody enjoys it, uh, spends time with family, friends, you know, whoever you're getting together with. Make sure you're safe. Make sure you wear your mask. And, um, you know, 2020 has been tough, but it's nice that we're getting on to another year and another opportunity to live a better life for ourselves after what was just a terrible, abysmal year. So hope everybody enjoys it. Let's talk some sports because there is a lot to get into. I'm going to do a lot of different segments today, more than maybe in a typical episode, uh, but shorter segments than maybe what you guys are typically used to most weeks. So we're going to get some baseball, we'll do some NBA, uh, college football, uh, the NFL as well. So let's begin with baseball. And while there is so much going on in, in December and as we head into January, uh, baseball is one of the only sports that's not currently in action. But the offseason uh, has kind of hit its stride this week. I think there's been more action than I think many expected as we headed into the holidays. And that is in large part thanks to the San Diego Padres. Now, you guys probably saw early, earlier this week that the Padres made two just ginormous trades. I mean, trades that are going to really impact the season. First, and this was maybe four or five days ago, they traded with the Tampa Bay Rays for Blake Snell. So they got Blake Snell, a terrific starting pitcher, one of the best lefties in the game. And then they went out and they got Yu Darvish, who was second in Cy Young last year, just finished behind Trevor Bauer and in front of Jacob deGrom in the NL Cy Young race, and was a terrific pitcher for the Cubs for the last few seasons, been on a couple different teams, and has just been a stud throughout his entire career. So they have two new aces that they can pair and the Padres have a lot of arms already. They've got Denelson Lamette, who was not in the Scion conversation, but maybe in the second tier of candidates last season in the short season. They also have Mike Clevenger, who they recently traded for uh, from Cleveland. He'll be back in 2022 post-surgery. He's excellent. They've got Mackenzie Gore, uh, Chris Paddock's young. So this team has a lot of arms. And when you combine those starting pitchers with maybe the game's most exciting player, in Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado they have. Uh, Jake Cronenworth was in the Rookie of the Year conversation. Will Myers, Eric Cosmer. This team is a chance to be really, really good. And although it's been the Dodgers division, they're the defending champions, they've won eight straight NL West titles, this might be the Padres' year. They're going to be a serious threat uh, in the National League. And more so than just what the Padres did, because obviously they're a much improved team today. And uh, they'll be around for a long time as one of the top teams in the NL. I just want to get to where we are in terms of baseball and and how it's so refreshing to see an executive like AJ Preller and a team like the Padres truly going for it. Because I think we're in a place in baseball that we've really never been in a long time. It's a it's a tough time for Major League Baseball. I mean, it really is. They're they're struggling. The pandemic's hit them hard. Teams don't have the money they used to have. And I think we're headed in a direction where we might not be able to reverse the trend anytime soon. So if you look around the league today, there has never been a bigger discrepancy between the big market teams and the small market teams. You have maybe five, six, seven teams out there. The Yankees, the Red Sox, the Mets, the Dodgers. There's a few others. And they all play in big markets and they can spend like crazy. 
and they can go out and get whatever free agent they want, and they're going to spend a ton of ton of money on wh- whichever players that they choose to add to their rosters. And then you have the small market team. So there's a lot of teams like that. You, you know, Pittsburgh and Oakland and Minnesota. I mean, there are a bunch out there. And these teams just don't have the financial means to go out and spend uh, comparatively to the other teams. And that's how they fall behind. And it's really unfortunate that we have this major gap. It's never been uh, such a gap that we have now. But it really hurts these small market teams because they just can't pay up for talent and they can't keep talent. And it's a problem. You know, we've seen and and we're going to continue to see these small market franchises continue to give up on players that they have and that they've locked into control for a long time because they just can't afford to post-arbitration pay them in free agency. And so if you look at what the Rays just did, and it's really it's really unfortunate, they just took one of the best lefties in the game, one of the best left-handed pitchers we've seen in this game in a decade, a former Cy Young winner a couple years ago. They traded him. He's on a three-year deal for $39 million. For most teams, that's a bargain. $39 million over three years for a guy like Blake Snell He's super cheap. But now the Padres are getting him. They're going to be able to pay him. And the Rays just couldn't. The Rays, despite being one of the AL's best teams, they're the defending American League champions. They were just in the World Series. They can't keep him around. And so I don't know how baseball is going to recover from this type of issue. I just don't. It's really unfortunate that we're heading into an era where analytics has never been more prevalent. Everything's about the three true outcomes of home runs, strikeouts, and walks. Everything's about velocity. Teams want to have guys that throw 100 miles an hour but can't locate their pitches. Guys want to hit the ball at a perfect exit velocity and hit it at a perfect launch angle out of the ballpark time and time again. A lot of the fundamentals and the nuances of the game have gotten lost on us over the last decade or so, and I don't think fans are enjoying it to the extent that they once did. Also, the players are, are, are less recognizable today than they've ever been. The Rays just went to the World Series. Now, I know a lot of the Ray players because I watch the team a lot over the course of the season, and I'm a diehard baseball fan, but casual fans might only know two, three, four guys on that entire roster. And two of them, they're two, two, arguably two of their best players in Snell and Charlie Morton, starting pitchers, the, the strength of the team. Those guys are now gone. Morton's onto the Braves, and Snell's onto the Padres. Those guys are now gone. And, and I just don't know how we're going to reverse this trend. We need to create a system in baseball where each team has a chance. Each team has a chance to keep their guys and to, to pay up when an available free agent is there that they need to go and get to fill a hole on their team. We're at the point now where half the league is purposely trying to lose or just remaining complacent and not doing anything and not filling the holes that they need filling those gaps in order to go out and win a World Series. There's very few teams out there that are purposely trying to get better. And so I I applaud the Padres. I applaud A.J. Prater and their ownership group for for really trying to make trades. And they just signed a player from Korea earlier this week as well. Maybe he'll be an impact addition for them. I applaud the Padres because it's refreshing. We haven't seen this a lot. Most teams out there are trying to lose. We see, we see the Rays purposely tra- trading away and letting their pitchers go. We saw the Pittsburgh Pirates last week trade arguably their best guy in Josh Bell. Because you know why? Those teams feel that those players are a little too expensive for them, and instead they can go down in AAA or AA and go grab a young kid, pre-arbitration, he's making $500,000 a season for the next three years, 
and they can throw them in there and hopefully get similar production than you would with the recognizable face of your franchise. And so I don't know how baseball reverses this trend. I don't know what they're going to do to change it. But we're at the point now where a lot of teams don't have anybody that's a recognizable and, and face of the team. I mean, guys aren't going to stick very long. Guys' careers are shorter than ever. Salaries are smaller. They're getting they're, they're lowering each and every season. And, and, and baseball's stuck. We're at a point where we're almost at a, we're going to have a labor stoppage in 2022. Who knows if there's going to be a lockout. And I just don't know how baseball fixes its issues. The analytics are taking over the game. These young players, these cheap, young, inexpensive players are taking over the game. And I don't know what baseball is going to be able to do to fix that. It's really unfortunate, but I can tell you, when I started following the Mets and, and, and the major leagues in 2008, the game was a far different sport. And I think it was in a much better place than it is here in 2020. And don't blame it on the pandemic, because I think we were headed towards this towards this issue but the pandemic only speeded up the process. We were getting here. It just was a lot faster because of coronavirus. All right, let's move on to basketball. You know, it's so unfortunate what's happening with baseball, but let's move on to basketball. Where Spencer Dinwiddie, one of the better young guards in the league this week, partially tore his ACL and is out for the season. What a bummer for the Brooklyn Nets and what a bummer for Nets fans because they wanted to see this kid play. Spencer Dinwiddie was a second round pick a number of years ago out of Colorado, played for uh, played for Tad Boyle, and really was an unheralded name for his first few seasons. He played a couple of different teams. Nobody knew who he was. He came to the Nets, this was two, three years ago now, and became a star. And last year, without Kyrie Irving when he was hurt, Dinwiddie was actually in the all-star conversation for much of the season. So now he's out for the year, and on a team with Durant and Kyrie Irving, he may have been the third best player. He was their starting shooting guard. He could play with some of the bench guys as well as you know hang around in the starting lineup, play with KD and Kyrie. He could play off those guys. And he is a threat to score 25 points every single night. And he's out for the season. And for a team that I picked to go to the finals in the Nets and a team that I think many really like, especially seeing how Durant and Irving look coming off their injuries, this is a huge blow because there's nobody on this team that replaces what Dinwiddie does. He's a secondary playmaker. He's going to be their starting shoot. He was their starting shooting guard. So he can help with that. He can make plays for himself and for others. He can shoot the ball. He can drive to the basket. He can make free throws. He can draw fouls. And with his length and size at like 6'4, he's a pretty good defender for a guard. Now they lose him. Now they're not going to have him probably the rest of the season. He hasn't been exactly ruled out yet for the entire rest of the regular season and playoffs. But it looks like that's where we're headed, so I'm going to bank on him not being there. And I just don't know what the Nets do to replace him. This is an expensive roster. They just paid Irving Durant. They just paid uh, Joe Harris recently. And Dinwiddie's an impending free agent, so he'll make a lot of money, hopefully, on the market, although this definitely hurts his value. And there's not really a clear way for the Nets to improve. First of all, they can't now trade for James Harden because Dinwiddie was one of the key pieces that would have been in that trade. So they can't get Harden. They're going to have to look to the buyout market in a couple months. Maybe they'll make a, a lower-level trade, get some random guy on another team, and see if he can maybe replace some of that production. Uh, but, but there's really nobody out there that's going to be able to do quite what Dinwiddie can do because he was the best player on this team a year ago alongside Karis LeVert, and now those two guys have shifted back into smaller roles, but yet they have star-level numbers, and they could play off Irving and Durant really well. And I just don't know what they're going to do because... 
Dinwiddie was arguably the third best guy on this team, and I think it's a big story. I mean, I picked the Nets to go to the finals. There are a lot of people out there that also did think that they're the best that the Eastern Conference has to offer this season. And if you take your third best player off that team, that's a huge hit. So the Nets are 3-2 and two now. They just beat the Atlanta Hawks earlier tonight. But to lose Dinwiddie, it's a really, it left a sour taste in my mouth when I found this news out a couple days ago. And I just don't know what the Nets do. There's not a clear way to upgrade. There's not a clear way to replace him. I assume someone like Timothy Luau Cabarro will enter the starting lineup. Maybe Landry Shamit gets extra run. Maybe Bruce Brown, who they acquired from Detroit, gets some extra minutes. But there's just not an obvious way to make an upgrade. And I think the Nets will sorely miss Dinwiddie the rest of the season. I am really upset for the guy. He's a terrific player. He's a terrific dude. And he's going to be out the rest of the season, most likely. All right, we're going to take our first break here for the day on Schwartz on Sports. We will be right back with more. We'll talk some NFL, college football, and I'm going to give my five most important moments of LeBron James's career as he celebrates his 36th birthday today. So we'll be right back. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Invader Coffee. Invader Coffee is an ultra-premium veteran-owned coffee company, proudly delivering only the best coffee your hard-earned money can buy. They aim to serve only the highest quality organic air-roasted coffee beans sourced from free trade farms all over the world. They keep things simple, the best coffee at an affordable price in order to provide you with the value you deserve for your morning boost. 100% fair trade, 100% organic coffee beans, 100% air-roasted, 100% money-back guarantee. Visit invadercoffee.com and enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Hey everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports. We're here with more NFL, college football, and we'll talk a little bit about LeBron and his birthday celebration today. So let's go on to Dwayne Haskins and what happened there with the Washington Redskins, or I should say Washington football team. So as many of you may have heard, Dwayne Haskins, the first round pick just a year ago out of Ohio State, 15th overall, was released by Washington a few days ago after what had really been a tumultuous almost two seasons for Dwayne uh, with Washington. And it just did not go up from the start. It really never improved. And here he is today without a team. So just a little bit of a timeline. So Haskins was picked 15th and it was reported, widely, widely reported, that Jay Gruden, who was the coach at the time, did not want to pick Haskins but the owner, Dan Snyder, who was in, involved in a lot of his own controversies at the moment, wanted him badly. So they took him. He was the first-round pick, and they had him, and he started a bunch of games his rookie year. Didn't really go well. The team was bad. He was bad. And Bill Callahan became the interim coach after four or five games, and the team was awful. They got the second pick in the draft last year, took Tra- uh, Chase Young. And so now they went into this season, and, of course, they're still alive today. They'll play Sunday with a chance to win the division if they can beat the Eagles. But Haskins will not be a part of that now. He had started some games this year. Uh, he had been in two, involved in two COVID controversies, including last week he was at the strip club, apparently. No, uh, no mask. And he was photographed doing that. So eventually Ron Rivera, who was a hard-nosed tough guy, the new coach there, said, I'm done with this. I didn't pick you in the draft. I have no loyalty to you. You haven't played well. All you've done is disappoint this franchise and you're gone. So it's really unfortunate, but at the same time, I think this is one of those situations where you can say multiple things can be true. 
Dwayne Haskins, yes, has been terrible on the field. Dwayne Haskins, yes, has been immature and has made dumb decisions over the course of his tenure with the Red, with, with Washington. But at the same time, was he ever truly given a fair shake to get this job and to claim it and to take control of it in the last two years? Absolutely not. Dwayne Haskins is, was a raw quarterback coming out of Ohio State. He'd only started there for a year. He put up record numbers, like 50 touchdowns his last year at Ohio State. But he was pretty raw, and he was going to take time to develop. And I think Washington knew that when they picked him. But they rushed him into the starting lineup. They had to fire their coach about a quarter of the way through the season. Then he was given a new coach. Then at the end of his rookie season, they hired Ron Rivera. So that's a third coach. That's a new new offensive system. That's a new playbook. That's new players. A lot of change there. And it seemed like there was very little loyalty to him within the building over both regimes. Because... Jay Gruden didn't want him, Ron Rivera didn't pick him, and Ron Rivera decided to make a quarterback upgrade this offseason. Not only did they bring Alex Smith back, but they also brought Kyle Allen in, who had a relationship with Rivera in their Carolina days. And so it really seemed like Haskins didn't have much confidence among the coaches. They really didn't believe in him. And after 13 starts, he is now cut as an NFL quarterback. So, you know, yes, sure... Was Haskins bad? Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, was he given the the resources that other young quarterbacks are given? No. Was he given, you know, was he, was he propped up by the organization the way that other players are? Absolutely not. And so when you feel that lack of confidence and when you're 22, 23 years old, it's hard to, to perform amongst the chaos around you. I mean, this is a team that just changed its name. Its owner is involved in a lot of allegations against him, which are just awful, by the way. Uh, so And the team has been terrible, and there's very little talent there. And so, yes, there's a lot of chaos around him. It's been dramatic, and there's just been a lot of bad that's kind of followed Haskins through his NFL career. And now he gets a chance to break away from it. Hopefully he'll get a reset. Hopefully some other team will take a chance on him. But after 13 starts, he's now a free agent. And I think we're seeing this more and more in the NFL now, where young quarterbacks who were taken early in the draft, the leash on them is shorter than it ever has been. Josh Rosen was picked 10th overall a few years ago. He was a starter for one year, not even one year, started most of the games, but not all of them. And at the end of that season, the Cardinals made a quarterback change. They picked Kyler Murray first overall. And here they are two years later with a chance to make the playoffs. Haskins, maybe he'll get another chance like Rosen. He was with Miami last year. Now he's moved on to a couple different practice squads. But this is a tough, it's been a tough road for Dwayne. And I feel for him. I did think he was the best quarterback in the draft when he came out. He was actually picked as the third quarterback behind Kyler and behind Daniel Jones. But I thought he was the best guy. Big arm, can move around a little bit, uh, very strong, a big guy. Kind of reminds me of, of Ben Roethlisberger. And so obviously he didn't get quite a fair shake. But at the same time, when you do dumb things and you take selfies during games like he did, and when you... Well, you don't follow the COVID protocols twice, and when they strip you of your captain, a uh, cap- captain honor, it's just hard to, to regain the trust of your teammates. And so I understand why the move was made, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge that while part of it, and maybe a lot of it was Haskins' fault, not all of it was Haskins' fault. Now, in terms of what the team is facing, this week Alex Smith might play. I would tend to think he won't. Looks like Taylor Heineke will get the start against the Eagles. If they win, they're in. They win the NFC East. And it would be quite an accomplishment, despite it being the worst division in the NFL, in NFL history. But if they win, they're in. Now, if they lose and, and Philadelphia beats them, then it comes down to the winner of the giant Cowboy game. 
and I'll talk a little bit about that game. Uh, Dallas is playing with a lot of confidence. Now, the Giants have lost three straight, and Dallas has won three straight, and Daniel Jones hasn't been healthy, and Andy Dalton's playing great. So, you know, it looks like Dallas would have a lot of momentum, but it's on the road. It's in MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't trust the Cowboys. This is a historically bad defense. There were reports earlier this season of the players quitting on Mike McCarthy and the new coordinator on defense, Mike Nolan. Uh, it just hasn't gone well for the Cowboys all year until the last month or so when they've kind of broken out and everybody's been back healthy. But it's been a disaster for Dallas. And for the Giants, despite the fact that they've lost three straight and their season appeared dead on Sunday, they're still alive. They still have a shot to make this thing. And all they got to do is beat Dallas and hope that that, that a fourth-string quarterback uh, can lose, or most likely a fourth-string quarterback can lose against Philly and Jalen Hurts. So the Giants are alive and well. And Joe Judge has instilled a confidence in this team that they can beat anybody on any given Sunday. We, show, we saw it when they beat the, the Seahawks like a month ago. So despite the fact that this team is a 5-10 record, despite the fact that Daniel Jones has underperformed for much of this season, they play with a physical toughness about them. They run the football pretty well. The defense is excellent. Patrick Graham has been one of the best coordinators in the league all season long. And the team is far better than it was when they started 1-7. So just the fact that they're here and have a chance to host a playoff game, a home playoff game, is remarkable. It's crazy that we're saying this, but Washington, the Cowboys, and Giants are all still alive. And it's a bad NFC East, but it's been an entertaining a- a- NFC East. So if I was going to make a prediction on it, I think I'd pick the Giants. I think the Giants will win at home on Sunday, and I think Washington will lose to the Eagles. Uh, Jalen Hurts has been playing pretty well, uh, taking over for Carson Wentz. And if Taylor Heineke plays, who's the fourth stringer, I just don't think Washington has a real shot. So I'll take the Giants winning this division. They'll host a home playoff game. But it's a remarkable journey for all three of these teams because they all seem dead in the water. But the incompetence of the others allowed them to stay alive for weeks and weeks and weeks. And here they are with a chance to make the playoffs on the final Sunday of the season. Really crazy, but that's how it is in the NFL these days. All right, on to college football, where Friday is the single biggest day of the season so far because we've got our college football playoff games. Semifinals are here. First, we got the Rose Bowl, like 4 o'clock. Notre Dame against Alabama. Should be fun, although I don't think it'll be particularly close. These games, over the course of the last five, six years since they started the playoff, some of these have been really exciting, but a lot of these end up being blowouts. I think Alabama has got just, just has too much. Uh, Mac Jones is far better at quarterback than Ian Book. I think the Bama defense is better. I think they can run the ball much better. Najee Harris is excellent. They've got better receivers. They've got a better coach in Nick Saban. So I would pick Bama by about 20 points if I was going to pick the Rose Bowl. And then the Sugar Bowl, the other game, which is later on that night on New Year's Day, Clemson against Ohio State, number two Clemson, number three OSU. I'd pick Clemson. I don't think it'll be particularly close. Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, the maybe the two top quarterback prospects. Definitely Lawrence is one. We'll uh, see if Fields ultimately comes out as number two into the NFL draft. But I think Clemson's better top to bottom. I think they're better at wide receiver. They've got more weapons. Travis Etienne is outstanding running back. Ohio State, a little shaky. I mean, they've only played five or six games this season, but they just survived Northwestern in the Big Ten title game. And Justin Fields was not good that week. That was two or three weeks ago. He was not good. And Trey Sermon, the running back, had to save the Buckeyes. Ran for over 300 yards that day. Was just phenomenal. And that was the only way they could win that game. They barely hung on and won it. And so I'm going to take Clemson. Clemson's been playing at a really high level. They just blew out Notre Dame in the ACC championship game a couple weeks ago. 
and I think they're playing with a lot of confidence. Lawrence is now healthy after his bout with COVID. And so I think Bama and Clemson will play yet again in the college football playoff championship game, which I believe is on January 11th. It's like a, a couple weeks from Monday. So that'll be fun if it happens. Uh, I think it'll be the third time that these two teams have played each other in the finals. Bama and Clemson have each won against each other previously. I think we'll see another meeting between these two elite programs because Bama's going to kick Notre Dame's butt, and I think Clemson's going to beat Ohio State pretty handily on Friday on Friday during uh, these playoff games. All right, we'll be right back. We'll take our last break, and then we'll talk LeBron. Turned 36 years old today on Wednesday. The greatest basketball player that I've ever seen. I think the greatest basketball player to have ever lived. And I will go 5-1, to one, the greatest accomplishment, the greatest achievements of his now 18 years in the NBA. So we'll be right back. Don't miss it on Schwartz on Sports. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Hoff and Pepper Hot Sauce. Handcrafted with farm-fresh jalapenos and habaneros, Hoff's original hot sauce has gone on to win numerous awards and gain international recognition. Hoff and Pepper always strives to create sauces and seasonings that enhance flavors with balanced heat profiles. Every one of their handmade products is manufactured in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and is naturally vegan and gluten-free. Shop today at hoffandpepper.com, and when you enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout, you'll save 10% off your purchase. Hey everybody, welcome back. Schwartz on Sports. Final segment of episode number 12 today. We are going to talk about LeBron James. As you guys probably know, my favorite athlete uh, in the NBA today. The guy who I think is the greatest ever. And that is LeBron. Lakers improved to 3-2 and two earlier tonight with a win over the Spurs. And what's kind of fitting is that on LeBron's 36th birthday... He played his 1,000th straight game with 10 or more points, which is just a ridiculous achievement. He has blown that record away. I think Michael Jordan had it previously, and he LeBron has now beat it by over 100 games. So 1,000 consecutive games where he has scored 10 or more points. It's just mind-numbing to think that there's never been a game where he was ejected early and didn't have 10 points, or you know maybe he had to he, he suffered an injury earlier in the game, sprained an ankle or something, and came out and didn't score 10 points in that game. Nope. A thousand straight games with 10 or more points. And it's, he's a guy who may become the all-time leading scorer. Uh, so it's just an incredible achievement. Congrats to LeBron on that. And a happy 36th birthday to the guy who I consider to be the GOAT. So let's go from five to one, the top moments, the top achievements of LeBron's career. So number five first, LeBron carried the 2007 Cavaliers to the NBA Finals. Now, I know they didn't win the finals. In fact, they got swept by a San Antonio Spurs team with three Hall of Famers, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker. Of course, Greg Popovich was also there. So LeBron had no chance of winning that series. But the fact that he actually took a team there to his first NBA Finals in 2007, number number five on his all-time accomplishments list, this was a team that outside of LeBron was just abysmal. Their second leading scorer at like 14.5 points a game was Larry Hughes. I know many basketball fans don't really know much about Larry Hughes because he wasn't a very memorable player to begin with. So that was the team he took to the finals. Mo Williams, who was on the team a few years later, wasn't even there yet. They had Shaq a few years later. He wasn't there yet. So many of the key players that many people remember from LeBron's days in Cleveland the first time, many of those players hadn't even arrived yet in Ohio. So LeBron really took a team that was bare and as a 22-year-old kid in his fourth season all the way to the NBA Finals to meet the Spurs. Crazy achievement, and on top of it, 
He had one of the greatest performances in the history of the NBA in the Eastern Conference Finals that year against the Pistons. You guys may remember 2007, Game 5 against Detroit, the 48th special game as it's known now. He scored 25 consecutive points for the Cavs in 29 of the final 30 points for the Cavs and led them to a win. He had a layup, a scoop layup with like two seconds left in overtime of that game. They won it. They ended up winning game six to come back in the series and win it. They went all the way to the finals. So that is number five on the all-time accomplishments list of LeBron, taking a really bad 2017 to the finals. If that team didn't have LeBron, I'd guess they'd probably win 20 or 25 games. I mean, they'd be a bottom of the lottery team, and they went all the way to the final series of the season. All right, number four, similar to, to 2007, but it happened uh, 11 years later. He carried the 2018 Cavalier team to the finals. Now, this Cavs team was not very good either. This was post-Kyrie Irving. This was the team that had Isaiah Thomas. They traded him. They had Jay Crowder. They traded him. They had an aging Dwayne Wade. They traded him. Derrick Rose, he was gone. So when they got to the postseason, it was LeBron. Kevin Love was the only other really star player, and he was kind of a fringe star at that point anyway in his career. They had Jeff Green, who was a kind of a veteran, a guy who's been on a lot of different teams before. They traded for George Hill. They had J.R. Smith. Uh, they had Rodney Hood. They had Jordan Clarkson. These were a lot of inexperienced young players that just didn't have the ability to to help LeBron out and win. They had Tristan Thompson from the championship team a couple years earlier. This was just not, it wasn't a good team. And they had injuries in the playoffs. They were able to escape the Indiana Pacers, the upstart Pacers, in seven games in the first round. LeBron had a buzzer beater in that series. Then they went on to play the top-seeded Toronto Raptors in round two, and LeBron was sensational in that series. They actually swept the Raptors with 59 wins. It was the final series of the DeMar DeRozan era in Toronto. They traded for Kawhi Leonard later that summer. Then in the conference finals, that was the team without Kyrie in Boston, where it was Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier, Marcus Smart. Uh, Marcus Morris was there too. And LeBron in that series, they were down 2-0. They won games three and four in Cleveland. They lost game five. And then in game six, LeBron scored, I think it was 46 points to send it to a game seven to go back to Boston. And that game, LeBron went for 35-15-9 and and sent the Cavs to the finals. Kevin Love did not play in Game 7, so that was the best, second-best player on the team. He was gone. He had a concussion. Didn't play. Jeff Green was the only other guy who was really an impact player in that Game 7. And LeBron had that, uh, that, that rem- remar- remarkable uh, transition layup that and won on Marcus Morris where he scored late in the game, sent the Cavs to a, a tight, close win. And so, to me, that was the greatest accomplishment, or sec- a fourth greatest accomplishment of his career, taking a really bad Cavs team, 11 years after he'd done it the first time, to his eighth consecutive finals, the fourth straight matchup with Golden State. And you guys may remember, in Game 1 of the finals that year against Golden State, that was the 51-point, eight-rebound, uh, eight eight-assist game where J.R. Smith forgot the score, Cavs lost in overtime. But the fact that LeBron took a fourth-seeded team that had struggled mightily throughout portions of the regular season, brought them all the way to the finals... Uh, incredible, and that's number four on this list. Number three, coming back from 3-2 to two in the 2013 finals. Now, LeBron had just won his first championship the previous year. That was where he uh, upset the Boston Celtics, Was went for 45 points in game six of the conference finals. They beat the Thunder in, in five games in the NBA finals, and this was the first year that LeBron played with Ray Allen in Miami, the third year he was there. 
And this was a team that went all the way to the finals. They had a 27-game winning streak in the regular season. They were dominant. They were, I think, 66-16 and 16 that year. Went all the way to the finals. They were down 3-2 to the Spurs. And then they the Ray Allen game happened. You guys may remember the, the crazy game where Ray hit the corner shot, sent it to overtime. The, the Heat won. They ended up winning Game 7, won the series, came back on the Spurs. But what people don't remember is how great LeBron was in that series. Many people do not remember that. They just remember the Ray Allen shot. But let me give you some history on this. In the fourth quarter of Game 6, before Ray Allen hit that shot, LeBron had 16 points. He scored most of the Heat points before the Ray Allen shot. And although he did miss earlier in that possession, Bosch got the rebound and kicked it out to Ray. LeBron had 16 points. He was excellent in the fourth quarter. Had, I think it was 32 for the game. And was a big part in helping the Heat get that to 7. And then in Game 7, scored 37 points. Many of those points came on jump shots as the Spurs dared him to take jumpers. He made a lot of them, and he made, which was essentially the series-clinching shot, it was a a mid-range pull-up shot over Kawhi Leonard's outstretched hand by the free throw line, kind of by the elbow, made it. It was like 35 seconds left in the game at that point. The Heat had kind of iced it, and they ended up winning their second straight title. LeBron doesn't really get appreciated for that title as much as I think he should, but 16 points in the fourth quarter of Game 6, and then 37 points in the fourth in, in game seven allowed the Heat to uh, pull that out and win their second straight. All right, number two, this is just recently, the bubble championship. This comes last year. LeBron, number one seed in the West. Of course, there's a pandemic. They have to go to Disney World. They're there for about three months, a little bit over three months. And while many of the other teams in the bubble did not perform up to standard, the Clippers definitely come to mind. The Lakers were really the only veteran team that thrived in the bubble and actually played their best basketball while they were in Disney World. Some of the young teams did do pretty well, though. The Heat went to the finals. I mean, there were others. The the Nuggets went to the conference finals. But many of the other veteran teams with superstars who had been around a long time did not do really well there. And there was a number of reasons for that, but no family. You're kind of isolated. You're in quarantine a lot. Uh, it's, It's away from your families. There's just a bunch of reasons for why the bubble was hard. It was very lonely, depressing there. Guys like Paul George said they really suffered while they were in the bubble. But the Lakers were the one team that that really thrived and and uh, elevated their game to a new level. Uh, went through the Western Conference rather easily, beat all three teams in the Western Conference in five games. They beat Miami in the finals in six games. LeBron, four finals MVPs in four championship runs in his career. His 10th NBA Finals appearance, ninth in 10 years. And although they didn't have the most difficult path, still, I think it's number two on the list just because the bubble was such a difficult road for these guys. It was not easy to be in Disney World for that long without without many of your family members. But he did it, and he led, Anthony, along with Anthony Davis, led the Lakers to uh, their 17th championship as a team. And then obviously number one, this is just the most clear-cut number one that I'll do on any list. The 3-1 comeback 2016 against Golden State. Of course, you guys all remember LeBron and the Heat and the Cavs, excuse me, down 3-1 against the Warriors, the 73-win Warriors pre-Kevin Durant. And they're down three games to one in Oracle for game five in California. And LeBron goes for 41 points in that game, alongside Kyrie Irving, who also went for 41 points. They force a game six. They go back to Cleveland. LeBron forces a game seven because he puts up 41 more points in Game 6, one of the great performances I've ever seen in his career. A couple of memorable moments in that game include uh, the big block on Steph Curry where he turned back around and definitely said some extra words to him after. And so they went to Game 7. 
Of course, LeBron, 29-point triple-double in Game 7. The block, the most famous defensive play in the history of the NBA. Of course, Andre Iguodala in transition with two and a half minutes to go. LeBron goes up, blocks the shot off the backboard. Kyrie Irving makes the big three a minute and a half later. And the Cavs win their first ever championship, the first championship for a Cleveland professional team in 50 years. It was the greatest NBA Finals I have ever seen. It was the greatest comeback in sports that I've ever seen. And LeBron finished it off with one of the greatest moments in sports that I've ever seen. So that is clearly the number one uh, moment in his career. Of course, it was his first championship that he'd brought to his hometown team. He was born in Akron, which is close to, to Cleveland. He's from Ohio. He went back there in 2015 to bring a championship to that city. And in his second year back, he delivered on that promise. So that is clearly the most uh, iconic moment, most iconic uh, play of his career. And that is number one on the list. Happy 36 to the GOAT. Uh, LeBron has been someone that I've looked up to for many, many years, and I will continue to. It's crazy to me that he's in his 18th season. He's still the best player in the game. So just congratulations, LeBron. Happy birthday. And uh, hopefully there's many more memories to come as you finish out your career. Most likely he'll be with the purple and gold forever. Just sign an extension there. But no matter where his career takes him, I will always be watching and always be following each and every game that he plays. All right, that's going to do it for me here on Schwartz on Sports. I hope everybody enjoys their new year. Hope everybody enjoyed their Christmas last week. The holidays are one of the best times of the year. So make sure we cherish it before we head into the start of 2021. Uh, enjoy, spend time with family, spend time with friends, be safe. Thank you everybody for listening. More content sure to come soon. Make sure you follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's at SchwartzOS underscore BU. That's SchwartzOS underscore BU. And there'll be more episodes sure to come in the coming weeks. So thanks for listening and have a great night.